Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be here with you this morning, and uh, appreciate uh, Ben's uh, giving you an overview of the university. He does that really well. We should hire him. And uh, really great to have uh, you here at uh, Cairn University. We uh, love this church, and uh, we're really glad to be able to serve you these past months. And uh, it's always great to look out and see uh, so many familiar faces here, uh, friends and uh, old and new, and so many of our faculty and staff who are part of your body, and students. You get a good number of students on a regular basis, I think, being here. Uh, these last several months, uh, you've gotten your regular students, and then you've gotten the group that I call the Roar crowd. That's the roll out and run crowd, to run to church on Sunday morning, and uh, hopefully some of those will stay with you. But we really appreciate you being here. We've been blessed to have you here. Uh, it's just thinking uh, in the first service when we were singing a little bit uh, together, uh, this uh, really fitting for you as Riverstone Church to be at Cairn University because that's what Joshua did. He took those 12 stones from the riverbed and built a cairn at Gilgal. So how fitting uh, that you're here. And uh, yeah, maybe this is the start of something else. I had another pastor ask me if uh, we would do the same thing for their church. They thought it was working out well. And uh, would you consider doing that for us? I said, yeah. He said, is it a good arrangement? I said, it's a really good arrangement for churches that have stone in the name. Um, <clears throat> we like to keep it keep it all uh, consistent at Cairn University. Uh, it's really good uh, to be here as well. I, I made a mistake in the first service. You know, uh, um, many people here uh, know my wife Dawn from either uh, years past or their work at Choice One. Uh, she's helping with baptism at our home church. Everybody asks about Dawn when I'm on the road, which is great, which proves how smart I am because smart men marry up. Right, Roger? Right? <laughs> smart men marry up. Uh, and so, uh, that's uh, really, uh, Dawn's missing her time here this morning, but uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, and uh, here we go. We're going to open God's Word uh, together. You know, they say when you go to a church that has two services, you know, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Uh, so uh, we're going to open the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6. I want to share from a very familiar passage of Scripture with you uh, regarding the armor of God. <clears throat> and to set a little context, first sort of a rationale for, for my choice in this passage and uh, why I've been spending so much time thinking about uh, Ephesians 6 and the armor of God these days, and then a little bit about the book itself. Uh, first, I think that uh, when we think about the world in which you and I live presently, uh, it is a difficult time. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, Christian thought leaders and ministry leaders uh, for several years now have been talking to us and talking about this phenomenon, warning us as Christians about the increasingly the increasing secularization of our culture and society and the impact that that has on carrying out uh, the gospel ministry uh, in America, in the West. And particularly as we are on this trajectory towards a post-Christian culture, what will that mean for us as followers of Jesus Christ? And there's this concern that it's just going to get harder and harder. The problem for us as Americans is we actually think that the future is supposed to get easier and easier, but that's not the Christian way. Um, and so... Uh, there's this concern about how will we, how we make it as sort of the world gets harder and we look at what's going on around the world and here in America. And, and so I think that it's very fitting for us to be reminded of the truths of God's Word that would bolster us and strengthen us and raise in us a spirit of courage and faith. And I think this passage on the armor of God does that quite well. You know, we are sort of facing difficult times. The, the, uh, over the last several years, I've been asked by several people, well, what will happen the government takes away our tax-exempt status and people no longer get a tax credit uh, for their gifts 
uh, to Christian ministries. And I said, it will test the metal of the church. Will you give, though it doesn't benefit you financially? If we don't, shame on us, right? Uh, what will happen if they make it uh, difficult for us to uphold our biblical convictions and, and to do the things that we believe are right? We'll do them Though we'll do the right thing no matter what, and we'll hold our ground. Well, it'll get hard for us. They'll come after us. Yes, that's what Jesus promises. What will happen if they make the preaching of the gospel illegal? We will do it anyway if they throw us in prison or worse. This is what we do as Christians. We go forward. We preach the gospel. We make disciples, no matter what our context. And it's so easy for us in our current day to say, wow, it's just getting so much harder. We've probably... Uh, past the high watermark with the, the political and cultural and social influence of the evangelical community. While we're enjoying somewhat of a reprieve right now, we think that somehow it's going to get better. I'm telling you, it's not going to get better. It's going to get harder in the West. It's going to get more and more difficult in America. We will continue to be marginalized. And the reason that, that I say that is because that's the trajectory we're on. And apart from a spiritual renewal, there is no change. There's no political, cultural, or economic change that fixes the sin problem with the world. It's only the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we bear this in mind. The other thing I think it's interesting to think about our state as American Christians is we tend to look around at our circumstances. We're very circumstance-oriented. We think, wow, we've got it so bad. We need to keep things in mind. The Apostle Paul is writing to the first century church. Persecution for them was a lot worse than getting made fun of in a Saturday Night Live sketch. Their children were being fed to wild animals before their very eyes. They were being painted with red pitch and piled up to light the streets of Rome. Our forebears knew what it was to be persecuted in a way that you and I do not. But we need that kind of courage and that kind of strength and that kind of faith. We need to be reminded of the truths of God's Word that embolden us, give us courage, strengthen us in our faith to live life in this world. Many of us are worried about the future for our children and our grandchildren, and for good reason. We're human, we love our people, we love our families, we love our friends, but we're followers of Jesus, and that has to come first. And so we remind ourselves of the truths of God's Word, and the Apostle Paul's doing that for the early church. He's writing to that early church there. It's a church that he cares very deeply about. In the first three chapters of this letter, he's laying out some very strong theology all the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. And he walks them through this reality that we were once lost and now found. We were blind and now see. In fact, he says, we were dead in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. We were dead and made alive. It isn't we were flailing in the pool and God flew a, threw a life preserver out there and we swam for it. We were lifeless on the bottom, dead. God took us from the bottom of the pool and breathed new life into us and made us alive. This is the group that Paul is writing to. We know we were dead in our sins, been made alive in Jesus Christ, we've been singing this morning. And so he walks them through this theology and then talks to them about how they're to live their lives. And he goes through specific things about how we're supposed to walk in light of the gospel, wisely, in love, as imitators of Christ. But then he also talks about relationships, husbands to wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. And then at the end of the letter, in chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, he lays out this, this, this idea about putting on the armor of God. So I'd like to read a few verses and then make some additional comments. Chapter 6 of Paul's letter to the Christians at Ephesus, beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. 
Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, that with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It's a great passage of Scripture. It's very familiar to us. One of the dilemmas when something is familiar to us is we get so used to it, we're so familiar with it, that it takes an awful lot of effort to look at it with fresh eyes and to see the powerful teaching that is in passages of Scripture that become so familiar to us. And the more familiar we are with something, the more attentive we need to be, the more focused we need to be. So this morning what I want to do is walk through this very familiar passage of Scripture to ask you to attend with me to the teaching that we see here and the important ideas that Paul lays out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he was laying out for that early church in all the hardships that they were experiencing, both their personal hardships and their contextual hardships, and that those things still speak to us today. Because what we know to be true is this. There are contextual issues that, the, that Christians down through the ages have faced. And while there have been moments in time where we've been more influential and felt like we were riding high, for the most part in the history of the church, our way has been the way of suffering and persecution. In the long history of the church, it's been hard for the faithful to live out their life on this earth because, because it was promised to us that it was going to be that way. But it's also true that we have personal issues, personal personal faults, personal temptations, personal sins, personal trials, illness, loss of loved ones, things for which we grieve, loss of employment, loss of livelihood, fear of the unknown, concern for our children. All of these personal things come at us as well. That's life on this earth. We deal with the reality of life on this earth. The Apostle Paul writing this letter to Christians knew it wasn't just that they had contextual struggles of persecution. He knew them as human beings and followers of Jesus, that life in this world is sometimes difficult. There are trials and tribulations we all endure, and this passage speaks to those as well. It's not just a political or cultural passage. It has personal and individual implications as well. And so let's attend to what is said here in a very intentional way to glean from this things that will be very powerful for us to, to learn. But Let's remember that it is something that was familiar, is familiar to us and would have been very familiar to them. I remember my introduction to this passage of Scripture. I remember being a very young boy. My parents sent me to vacation Bible school. And I remember one of the early lessons in, in vacation Bible school was on the armor of God using a flannel graph. You know, you remember flannel graphs, right? Flannel graphs, this sort of nondescript Roman soldier stuck on a piece of felt. Then came the tunic, then came the belt, then came the breastplate, then came... I remember until it got so thick, he was like three inches wide and falling off. The teacher kept putting stuff up. It wasn't PowerPoint, folks. It was a lot more challenging, right? But it's what we had, right? To make it familiar to us, to visualize it. Paul's readers wouldn't have needed flannel graphs for PowerPoints. They would have seen Roman soldiers 
and, and soldiers of the land all around them all the time. The oral tradition and oral history, the stories that were told about the battlefield and about soldiers and what would have been part of everyday life. When the Apostle Paul chooses by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to use this illustration to talk to us about wearing the armor of God, it's something they would have known in their own culture and time, and it's something they would have known in their own tradition as Christians and the Old Testament as well. This martial language is throughout the whole Bible. Today in our culture, as Christians, we want to sort of find a way to find a, a kinder, gentler way of talking about the Christian faith. But the Bible uses this imagery about battle and warfare and weaponry and soldiers and warriors on purpose to remind us the context in which we live, the struggles that we face. In fact, that's how this passage starts. He says in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He wouldn't say that if it wasn't necessary. Look, just think about that very thing. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Which means what? We should, by implication, understand that what he's going to ask us to do is difficult. That we do not possess the strength or might to do it. Because he says, look, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The very fact that he begins here must mean that he's acknowledging human weakness. You and I feel it every day. I'm not up to this. Paul starts out by saying, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It is not your own strength that will get. So if you're feeling like, I don't want to be in the fight, I'm not able to be in the fight, put that out of your, Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. For the whole, the whole epistle, that's what he's done in the first three chapters, is lining out all the things that are yours in and through Christ Jesus, all the things that God has done for you, all the things he's reminding them of, these eternal truths. And the, the idea is, you, you don't need to do this on your own strength. He starts out there because it must be a challenge. And you and I both know that to be true. It is a challenge to live the Christian faith the way it's to be lived in this world. But he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he goes on and says something that we need to be reminded. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So not only do we have God's strength and his power that enables us in the world in which we live, and Paul calling attention to that right out of the gate on this passage, but he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Now, the picture I have in my mind when I think about the idea of putting on the armor is in the Old Testament, and it's David. David's going out. He's going to face Goliath. And they decide, well, we'll send David out there, um, but he's got to be fortified, so let's get him some armor. And, you know, they go and they get him some armor. The problem is it's an absolute disaster, right? It's a helmet that's too large for him. He can't see what's in front of him. The breastplate's probably down to his knees. The spear's too heavy. I mean, it's just, if he goes out wearing that armor, he's going to get massacred. Because it's not his armor, it's whose armor? It's Saul's armor. It's armor for Saul. Saul is the king. It's probably custom-fitted to him. There was no, Saul wasn't going to have any trouble seeing, seeing through that helmet, but David would. He's just a boy. So the issue is this. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. It is armor fitted for you by God. You are not putting armor that doesn't fit you, that, doesn't, that isn't made for you. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. You've got to put it all on, but remember this. It's the armor of God. It isn't somebody else's armor that you're borrowing. It isn't somebody else's armor that you picked up off the shelf. God fitted it for you in and through Christ Jesus when he made you alive in him. He provides you all you need, and it is fitted for you. The other thing that's great about that image of Saul's armor is it's armor fit for Saul. It's customized, and it's probably the best stuff going. 
It's probably the best made of the best materials, probably the, the best coverage that you could get because they're not going to put the king at risk. And Paul's telling Christians, put on the whole armor of God. It is quality stuff. It can be relied upon. It can be trusted. And it is fitted for you. That's powerful encouragement. So you have the strength and power that comes from the Lord. And he says, and you have this armor that comes from God and you should put it all on because it is complete and reliable. And you put it on that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's a tall order. I'll tell you something, when you read that and you think about it, there's a tendency for some of us to say, I think that's really cool. I like that idea of spiritual warfare. And then some of us are saying, I, I, I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be in that fight. That's scary and a little crazy. It's otherworldly. And one of the things I think that we struggle with as Christians, to be perfectly honest, is we don't feel like we're in that kind of fight. And some of us don't want to be in that kind of fight. But here's the reality. We are. Not wanting to be and not feeling like you are doesn't make it not so. This is the truth of the Bible. God's Word tells us things that are just so. They are not so because we believe them to be so. They are just so. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, you're in a battle, folks. You're in a fight, and it's a spiritual warfare. Not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. It's a spiritual warfare. You cannot want it to be that way. You can feel like you're not in it, but it doesn't make it less so. It's the same thing we face. I use this example here with the students all the time. It's like gravity. Gravity isn't true because we believe it to be true. It's not like you get the option of being a gravity believer or, no, or a gravity non-believer. If that were the case, we'd spot you like, be easy, right? You know, people with their feet on the ground, believers. People floating in midair, non-believers, right? It'd be real easy. Gravity isn't dependent upon your adherence to it or your acceptance of it. It's just true. And it's the same thing here. It's a spiritual warfare. And if you don't feel like you're in the fight, maybe you're AWOL. Maybe you're in avoidance. And if you're terrified, maybe you're running in the wrong direction. The truth is, right, if we don't feel like we're in the fight or we don't want to be in that fight, neither of those is an option for us as Christians. We are in it. It's spiritual warfare. The Bible says this to us to remind us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And so that is a great reminder. Since we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we need the power of God and the strength of God and the armor of God. We can't win this because we can't see it. Thank God we can't see it. Remember in the Old Testament, the, the prophet had to pray that the eyes of his servant would be opened so that he could see into the spirit realm. And he was what? Terrified. Terrified. The spiritual warfare is real, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's a real fight. And though we can't see it, and we may not feel like we're in it, and we may not want to be in it, it doesn't make it not so. And then Paul says here, after reminding us of this fight, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against uh, the force, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The other thing I think that's important to remember about this is we are in a fight. We don't get a choice. We are in a fight. It's a spiritual warfare. But here's the thing we need to remember as Christians. You know, there's a reason that the martial language works for the Christian. We like that stuff, right? Soldiers, warriors, all of this. The problem is we're human beings. We often get misguided about what we're fighting for and who we're fighting against. 
And the issue about this passage that stands out to me, and this is the problem for us as Christians, we want to think socially and culturally and politically, we want to think that, yeah, we're in a fight, we're in a battle, we're in, we're in warfare right now, but we tend to think then that the enemy, the people that we're fighting against, are the people that disagree with us or do not believe who are opposed to us. Let me tell you something. The people that disagree with us, the people who don't believe this truth, the people who are working against us, they are not the ones against whom we fight. They are the ones for whom we fight. They are the captives of the evil one. They are spiritually blinded. They are lost. They are not the enemy. They are the prisoners of the enemy. And the gospel liberates prisoners. This is what we do. Remember who we fight. We do not fight against those who disagree with us or those who do not believe in the gospel. We fight for them. We remember this because that's what stays us in the heat of battle. It's about the advancing of God's purposes and God's kingdom and the gospel. Paul reminds us that we're in a battle, but he also reminds us who we are fighting against and what we are fighting against. And I think that's very important for us, particularly in these days that are so politically charged, that the enemy are not those individuals who disagree with us. They are the prisoners of our enemy. He says here then in verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God, again a reminder, whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. It's again a reminder. It's the armor of God and we want you to stand. So put this on. He says then, stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. So here it is, the first piece. Everybody in that day, in Paul's day, would have known what that meant, right? There's a large and loose tunic that's fitted to a soldier. It's his outer garment. It flows and flops around. It's not form-fitted, and he has to buckle buckle a belt around his way to pull it all in. If you put on your armor without that belt, one, you have nothing to hold accoutrements. Two, everything is loose underneath, bunched up. You bend over. It's, It's not a good scene. You want to have the belt of truth. And Paul says, fasten around you the belt of truth. It's the image of Job, right? When God tells him, gird up yourself like a man basically what God is saying to you, buckle up. Buckle up your belt. I'm going to teach you something. It's the same imagery here. It's to be fortified and ready in battle. We need to have everything pulled in tight. What do we put on? The belt of truth. This is what we know. John 14, 6, what? Jesus himself testified, I am the way, what? The truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. The belt of truth is not something that we pull out like a utility belt or something. It's not, it's not, it's not an abstraction. It is the truth of Jesus Christ. Paul just reminded, this is the one who made you alive. You were dead in your sin, and God through Jesus Christ made you alive. You are forgiven and redeemed. You have the promise of eternal life all through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and life. He is the good shepherd, the bread of life. All these, you buckle that around, it holds everything, and it's foundational. Apart from that, you will succumb to temptation and assault and attack. Remember, you belong to Jesus. You fasten around you the thing closest to your body, the belt of truth. It holds everything together. It's at your center of gravity. It's integral. And it is the belt of truth. Jesus is the truth. And so this idea is that we need this just to function and wear everything else. So he says, stand, having fastened on the belt, belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness, as Benjamin said, we were singing, we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
The breastplate of righteousness is worn. Breastplate, soldier would have put it on after he's fastened up and everything's pulled together and the belt is on. You put on the breastplate. Covers the vital organs. It's absolutely essential because in ancient warfare, you know this, you would see arrows flying from a distance, there'd be javelins and spears launched, but then when push comes to shove, these armies wade into one another. And so you have to be covered. You want your vitals covered to protect you from the glance of a sword or a stab or something like that. The breastplate goes on front. It protects the vital organs. Absolutely essential. Without it, you're extremely vulnerable. Paul, in this, using this very uh, widely understood imagery, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And for us, what that means, we put on this breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness that comes from God in and through Jesus Christ. That means that it's fitted for you that it's reliable, that it will protect you. It can be trusted. This is what we know. Nothing can separate us from God at this point. We are His. We are preserved. We are protected. The breastplate of righteousness means that, but there's something interesting about a breastplate. It only protects you when you are facing the fight. When you turn to run, you are exposed. The breastplate of righteousness has given us that we would face the fight. These are great images that we have even in our current culture. We talk about first responders, these men and women who run toward the danger, right? They run toward the fire. They run towards the gunfire. They run toward the danger, not away from it. Jesus has given us this breastplate of righteousness, and Paul says to Christians, put it on, wear it with confidence, but understand it's meant to be facing forward. It does not serve you in retreat. So when the fiery trials come, when the difficulties come, when the temptations come, when the ridicule comes, when the persecution comes, you do not turn and run. You stay forward. Why? Because that's when you're the most protected. You stay in the fight is the message here. And so what ends up happening is you put on the breastplate of righteousness. You can wear it with confidence and knowing that you're going to face forward because if you turn your back on the fight, you're exposed. Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. It's a great image. These shoes would have been heavy, not the sandals that you see in the movies, you know, cheap movies. Like they're, they're, they're heavy, heavy. They had, armies had to walk long distances up and down and over rocky and rough terrain. These shoes were meant to protect the army's feet. An army is only good as its feet. That's what the generals say, right? Protect their feet. Good shoes. Good shoes that can be relied upon to take you over the difficult terrain that you have to cover. But there's something else about the, 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 the shoes of these soldiers in that day. They were studded, not just for traction to climb and to march, but because they would stand shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, and lean into the assaulting army to hold them at bay and step forward together to push back. They needed the studs. Look, we have the same imagery for us today. It's not battlefield imagery but it's athletic imagery. You don't steal third in a pair of flip-flops. What do athletes do? Cleats laced tightly that fit you well, that are ready to go. It It is the shoes of readiness of the gospel of peace. We are ready for this fight. We are ready for the advancement of the gospel because our feet are shod with readiness that comes to us because God has made peace with us through Jesus Christ. We are in His army. He is not our enemy. He's given us what we need to face His enemy. So those shoes of readiness are absolutely essential. And we should take confidence that we're not given equipment that will have us sliding backwards and losing our footing. We've been given good equipment. We put on those shoes for our feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Verse 16 then. 
in all circumstances, in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's bad enough that people are shooting at you. Bad enough people are shooting pointed things at you that can do you harm. But then they light them on fire. It is said throughout all of ancient warfare and even warfare uh, in more modern times that flaming arrows call fear in your enemies from the heels. In other words, under the flaming arrow assault, people aren't just worried about getting hurt. They become terrified by the image of being hit with a flaming arrow. The flaming arrows are not just meant to do harm. They're meant to scare you into running away. And so what ends up happening is these fiery darts of the evil one are not just to take you out, but to cause you to want to turn and run and look for safer shelter. What has God given us? The shield of faith. What shield of faith? The shield of faith that is able to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Which flaming darts? Some of the flaming darts? All of the flaming darts. The shield of faith is sufficient. These shields in olden times would have been huge. They're not little round, not Captain America, throw it and it comes back to you kind of thing. Huge wooden barn doors covered with hide that would have absorbed the arrows and extinguished the flames. And they wouldn't just use it as individuals. They would stand shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield and move as one using the shield. This is the importance of the body. Here we are. We've all been given the shield of faith. Hold it with confidence. It can extinguish all the flames of the, of the evil one, all the fiery darts. And so what we do is we carry that faith with us in confidence, and we know that it is sufficient and adequate. But something else that Paul says is he says, in all circumstances, not just in some circumstances, not just in the circumstances where you don't feel up to the task, not in circumstances where you feel like you're completely and can't trust God even to get you through it, in all circumstances, the big ones and the little ones, hold firm the shield of faith. The picture I have again in the Old Testament is this. The children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea getting ready to enter the land. They send out the spies. Again, VBS, right? Ten were bad and two were good. No one remembers the names of the ten bad ones. But we know who were the two good ones. Joshua and Caleb. I remember being taught and thinking this about Joshua and Caleb. What stalwart fellows. What brave and hardy souls. What, what men. They weren't going to be afraid of bigger people with chariots and better armaments and well-fortified cities. They were brave. They had guts. No. The Old Testament tells us that they were held up as examples for us because they believed. It was not their courage. It was their courage informed by their faith. Because what did they say? They didn't say to, to, the, to the, the other spies and to most, we can't, we, we can go in. The chariots aren't that, they're not as big as you think they are. There's not as many as you think they are. We can stand up to them. They didn't say that at all. They said, wait, what are we shrinking back from? God said it's our land and he will fight for us. All we have to do is go. They're not, ex, they're not exceptional warriors or exceptional tacticians. They're people that believed God said it and we will do it. Their faith was what gave them courage. So when Paul says, take up the shield of faith, you and I need to be reminded always what we believe to be true. Jesus said what? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. Absent from the body is present with the Lord. Right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. These are the things we believe in. We hold firm to them, and nothing can happen to us when we hold firm our faith. The shield of faith is adequate to all of it. Every assault by the enemy, every doubt, every fear, every trial, every circumstance, every temptation, faith 
people fall off the tracks in their life, it is always this, and it's true throughout the whole of the Bible. Look for it. The sin of unbelief leads to the sin of disobedience. The children of Israel were, were tried and judged for their sin in the desert, not because they acted disobediently first, but because they disbelieved, which led them to disobedience. This is it. God promises to meet your needs. Don't take matters into your own hands. When you take matters into your own hands, it's not just the sin of doing something for yourself and acting selfishly and taking matters. In, it's that you stop believing God would provide for you. The, take up the shield of faith in all circumstances to extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This picture again of the helmet is really powerful, right? You would not go into battle without one. Even today we talk about where's your cover? What's your cover? It used to be a steel pot. Now it's Kevlar. In the olden days it was the same thing. You wouldn't go into battle without a helmet. This is what made David look so ridiculous going up against Goliath. He's going into battle without You would wear a helmet. A good soldier wears a helmet. A good helmet. One that fits. Because even a glancing blow could be fatal. Look, you can take a shot to other muscle groups. You take a shot with a sword, an arrow, a club, a rock to the head. It takes you out of the fight. It can be fatal. God says here, take up the helmet of salvation using, again, Old Testament imagery because it's, the helmet of salvation is an Old Testament reference. So take up the helmet of salvation. God gives us what we need to protect us from the fatal blows. But here's the beauty of it being the helmet of salvation because we are saved through the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in his sacrifice is payment for our sin. We are given re redemption and forgiveness and the promise of eternal life. It cannot be taken from us. So this is what it means. We wear the helmet of salvation which protects us, but here's the reality. In the Christian's fight, there is no such thing as a fatal blow. There isn't one thing they can throw at us. There's not one thing they've thrown at the church through its entire existence that was fatal because every Christian who lost their life for their faith or for any was where? In the presence of God. What are we afraid of? Why would we not want to be in the fight? Why would we shrink back or turn and run or crouch in our foxhole? Why would we not wade in? Because there's nothing to lose and everything to gain. There is no fatal blow for the Christian. Why do we shrink back from ministry? Why do we care and worry about what the Supreme Court does or the IRS does? There's nothing they can do that can take. It's what Martin Luther said. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, his what? His truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Take it all. Throw me to the fiery furnace. God will provide. There is no fatal blow for the Christian. So when we look at our circumstances around us, we're afraid for our children, we're afraid for our grandchildren, we're afraid for ourselves. What will happen? We need things to turn in our favor. We need it easier. We lose sight of this. We've been given the helmet of salvation. And for us, we need nothing else. There is no fatal blow for the Christian. And then he's given us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the only offensive weapon we need, which is able to divide between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. It is living and active. It does not return void. All the passages of Scripture that teach us about the Word of God, it is the offensive weapon. It is what we take with us confidently as we wade into battle. There is no Christian ministry apart from the teaching of God's Word. You may call it ministry, but it is not Christian. Christians wield the sword of the Lord which is the Word of God. This is what we do. And we need to get good at it, and we need to be continu continue in it. We need to have confidence in it. God has given it to us for our protection and for the advancement of His kingdom, for the advancement of the gospel. So we take it up with confidence because God's given it to us for His service. Then he says this, pray, 
verse 18, at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints, for all the saints. Two things that stand out to me in the armor of God that I really didn't see years ago when I was thinking about this. This relates to the soldier's posture. We face forward, and we're constantly in a posture of prayer on our knees. That's what we do. It's the only way to victory. We, we pray. And what do we pray for? Not our Lord, keep me safe. Lord, help me get through the drive through line without a hassle today. Lord, I hope the bank is open. Lord, I hope my picnic doesn't get rained. No. Pray for the saints. Brothers and sisters, we have brothers and sisters in the Lord who are being, their very lives are being threatened every day for their faith. We need to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world, for one another in this congregation, for the church at large. We need to pray for one another, as Paul says, persistently, persevere, be alert and vigilant, care about it and pray about it, not to protect us and make our lives easier, but to fortify God's people that they carry out his work for the advancement of the gospel. That's what we need to be doing. We have a friend who shared in this chapel a story with the students. He was at a pastor's conference. He was talking to a pastor's wife from Syria, and he was asking her about what was going on over there, and she said, every night when I put the kids to bed, I tell them this, we're going to sleep now. If bad men come into the house, just close your eyes and we'll all wake up with Jesus. That's the reality that our fellow Christians deal with in other parts of the world. We're worried about a Saturday Night Live sketch or a Washington Post article that makes fun of the Bible or Jesus. Folks, there are real issues at stake here. Pray for all the saints. And the Apostle Paul is asking for prayer for himself, not to make his life in prison easier, but that he might be able to boldly proclaim in chains. He's the perfect example. He's in prison. He's in chains. He's facing the end of his life, and all he wants to do is see the good news of Jesus advanced. That's the mark of the Christian. Always moving forward, always facing forward, always doing it prayerfully with our eyes on that, the advancement of the gospel. You're about to go home to your facility. New place, new digs, new opportunities. Weary, yes. Transition, difficult. Life circumstances, personal. Cultural circumstances, real. Folks, every day is a new day with Jesus. Every day is a new day for ministry opportunity. We look to what is next with confidence because God says, in my strength and power, put on the whole armor, stand firm, and advance this cause. It's the only remedy for what ails the world, folks. It's the only remedy for what ails us, the good news of Jesus Christ and all that is ours in and through him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you for your word, for the power that it has to teach us and instruct us and embolden us. We pray that your spirit would be at work in us to do your will and to your, do your good pleasure. Strengthen our faith, for we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Help us to trust you, to trust the armor that you provided, to face forward and stand firm with confidence and faith, we pray.